Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. And we believe that achieving inflation that averages 2% over time helps ensure that longer-term inflation expectations remain well anchored at our longer-run 2% objective. In turn, well-anchored inflation expectations enhance our ability to meet both our employment and inflation objectives, particularly in the new normal in which interest rates are closer to their effective lower bound, even in good times. Hence, as we say in our statement, with inflation running persistently below 2%, we will aim to achieve inflation moderately above 2% for some time, so that inflation averages 2% over time, and longer-term inflation expectations remain well-anchored at 2%. The fact that that Bitcoin went through it, and we saw what happened, and we saw that the community would defend Bitcoin, that's what gives a person like me confidence to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in Bitcoin. I I, I don't want to hear that you've got a new idea and you're upset over transaction fees and you would like to implement smart contracts. So you got to change everything. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear that you're going to defend the network to the death against someone that's going to break it or compromise it in any way, shape or form. Don't sue me, pump. Yes. I stole that from Anthony Pompliano's podcast, but it was just, it was literally the best part. I mean, the whole damn thing was was really good. Okay, just just say it. I mean, I don't normally listen to to pop because uh, I just there's so many good podcasts out there, and his is good. I'll I'll I'll, I'll give him that. But um, yeah, I just I mean, I don't normally listen to pop uh, just because there are so many other ones out there that I like listening to, especially like you know taco plebs or there <laughs> there's too much fun. So yeah. Um, don't sue me, Pomp. <clears throat> it is 6.31, God, a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 17th of September, 2020. This is episode 288 of Bitcoin, and this is probably going to be a short show. Uh, there, for whatever reason, is just not a whole lot going on, unless I did an entire episode on DeFi, which I'm, I'm never going to do. Uh, although I've just picked up a tweet from Mike Novogratz. Oh God, check this shit out. The herd is coming slower than I once thought, but the future is now. Buy Bitcoin, learn and invest in DeFi. 2021, these old guys are in, so beat them to it. Of course, Pierre Rochard comes back and just says, buy and hold Bitcoin. And then Mike just doubles down and says, I have said outside of Bitcoin, everything is a giant venture sandbox, so bets should be scaled appropriately. I do think there are fascinating DeFi projects worth... 
Uh, okay, I'm just going to stop there. Fascinating DeFi projects. What? Sushi? Yam? Version 3 or whatever the hell we're going to be on? Is it really that fascinating? Do you even really know what DeFi even does? What is its purpose? Why is it here? Does anybody even know? Is this literally the same shit that was going on in 2017 where all these altcoins were popping up left and right? People were making millions of dollars and of course they all went away like Unicorn. Yes, that's right, Unicorn, which lost like 99.9% .9 of its value. It's trading at a penny. People were buying it at above a dollar. Do you, uh, it's, what, what was the reasoning back then? Right now, the reasoning is like, at least I will give DeFi this. It's at least more narrow. <clears throat> but when I go down the reasoning, the, the, like I don't have to worry about what Filecoin was going to do with DeFi. I will give it that. I don't have to worry about what Unicorn was supposed to do. I don't have to worry about what Polkadot was supposed to do. I don't have to worry about any of this shit with DeFi. But still... I mean, I, I don't have to worry about any of this shit with DeFi because it's such a narrow path. I don't have, to, there's not a whole lot of reasoning, you know, different reasons as to why this stuff occurs. However, when I look at this very narrow and very collapsed view of that, which is DeFi, I look down that road and I don't, I, I, I don't see an exit ramp. I don't see a destination. I literally don't see anything. So if somebody can tell me what DeFi is actually supposed to do, please tell me. And if I get like responses like make you money or <clears throat> provide liquidity or what bullshit, I'm just going to mute your ass. I'm sorry, but just the entire thing is just freaking stupid. Okay. So again, there's probably, this probably going to be a shorter show than normal. So please forgive me. But for whatever reason, all the news outlets are blowing up with BS DeFi stuff. So we got we to gotta take what we can get here. And we will go ahead and start with the two things that I alluded, well, that were alluded to at the front of the show. We're going to start with MicroStrategy, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the whole uh, oh, uh, Jerome Powell speech. MicroStrategy outperforms NASDAQ composite after $175 million Bitcoin purchase. Paul de Havilland is writing for CryptoBriefing.com sometime yesterday. The market's response to MicroStrategy's second foray into Bitcoin suggests that the asset class is growing on traditional investors. Unless, of course, you're Bruce Fenton, which is going all bubbly over Ethereum and DeFi today. Okay, MicroStrategy stocks rose over 9% as their CEO revealed the company had purchased another $175 million in Bitcoin. The investment makes up part of the firm's strategy to diversify the company's cash holdings. MicroStrategy has made a large purchase of Bitcoin for the second time in two months. Its first purchase was in August when it diverted around $250 bucks worth of cash. Holdings to assets like stocks, silver, gold, and Bitcoin. Of course, they didn't actually buy stock, silver, gold. They just bought the Bitcoin. Now, with another $175 million purchase, the Delaware-based software company has demonstrated even more trust in Bitcoin as a store of value. 
The company's Bitcoin holdings now stand at 38,250 Bitcoin. <clears throat> okay, Delaware-based company. Okay, guys, most corporations are incorporated in the state of Delaware for tax reasons and legal reasons, regulatory reasons. I don't think he was actually starting the company in Delaware. I'm just just saying this is probably somebody who did a scant amount of research. Public filings with the SEC indicate that the company may uh, exceed holdings in Bitcoin above $250 million. MicroStrategy's moves seem to have pleased market participants as the company's stock jumped over 9% while the NASDAQ composite sat at just over 1% gains. Competitor IT services companies saw minor movements. Cognizant was up around 1.2. Citrix was up under 1. And Infosys was up less than 1%. MicroStrategy's intention was capital preservation with company CEO Michael J. Saylor saying of their first Bitcoin bet that the cryptocurrency was, quote, a dependable store of value and an attractive investment asset with more long-term appreciation potential than holding cash. Early signs are that investors agree. With famed investor Paul Tudor Jones, uh, Tudor's BVI's investment in Bitcoin futures in May, uh, money managers and corporations swimming in cash have effectively been given the green light to make investments in Bitcoin for its capital preservation properties. Jones's approval provides cover to institutions to make similar moves. While there has yet to be a large-scale migration to digital assets, the market's response to market strategy's decision could indicate that betting on Bitcoin may be appealing to investors who would never openly bet on BTC. So, okay, there you go. Now, the first part of the opening bit for the show uh, starred our good friend Jerome Powell, and this is out of Coindesk. Uh, Mayao Shen and Bradley Kuhn are... Uh, Oh, collaborating on this one for Coindesk.com sometime yesterday. Federal Reserve officials said Wednesday that they would hold United States interest rates at close to zero and work to push inflation above 2%, quote, for some time, end quote. Yeah. Closing the gold window was temporary too, so <clears throat> we, we shall see. Federal Open Market Committee keeps interest rates unchanged close to zero, according to its statement. The panel agrees to maintain accommodative monetary policy until inflation climbs above 2%, quote, for some time, end quote. The central bank will increase holdings of United States Treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities at least at the current pace to sustain smooth market functioning and help foster accommodative financial conditions. Uh, projection materials released with a statement show officials on average expect rates to remain close to zero throughout 2023. <laughs> Jesus. On average, officials do not expect 2% inflation until that time, the year 2023. Robert Kaplan, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and a voting member of the panel, voted against the plan. He prefers that the committee retain greater policy rate flexibility. Neil Kashkari, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, also cast a dissenting vote. He prefers that interest rates stay on hold until core inflation has reached 2% on a sustained basis, according to the statement. Economists weren't, weren't expecting Fed officials to make any changes to United States interest rates 
which in March were cut close to zero on an emergency basis as the devastating economic toll of the coronavirus started to become clear. Uh, you know, it's not the... Okay, I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> the devastating economic toll was not from the coronavirus. The devastating economic toll came from humanity's response to being a scared little bitch. It wasn't the coronavirus. It was about being all scared. And honestly, I'm going to go even further. The people in charge counted on fear to control the masses while they do all the bullshit that they always do. I guarantee you that the people in charge are not scared one little bit. But they count on the fact that the herd is just a quivering mass of jelly all the damn time so that they can do whatever the fuck they want, whenever they want, for whatever reason they want, and they don't want to hear about what you want. Continuing, last month, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said in a speech that officials plan to let inflation rise above 2% and stay there for a while to keep borrowing conditions easier for a longer time and allow the economy to heal. Uh, Quote, The Fed kind of kicked the door open at their last meeting by indicating a more aggressive approach to inflation. Matty Greenspan, founder of the cryptocurrency and foreign exchange firm Quantum Economics, told subscribers in an email on Tuesday, a day before the Fed announcement, quote, of course, now that they have everyone's attention, follow-up will be critical, end quote. No, it won't. Did Nixon follow up with the whole closing of the gold window on a temporary basis? There was no follow-up. The Fed has no intention to follow up. They don't need to follow up because they realize that the herd is a quivering mass of jelly. Bitcoin's price was trading at around $11,022 at press time, up 2.4% in the past 24 hours. The price moved temporarily to $11,071 right after the Fed's release. The S&P 500 index was up 0.35%. Of course, this is not true as of this morning when we get to running the numbers, but we'll get there when we get there. <clears throat> Let's see, Robert Stevens is writing about the whole Jesse Powell's Kraken deal. Let's find out how we're going to do this whole banking thing. He's doing this for decrypt.co, and this was sometime late yesterday. Kraken will be the first U.S. crypto bank. Here's why it matters. Like, Clickbait. Kraken Financial will be able to provide clients from 49 states with digital asset custody services and help them make payments. That's op- they're opening for 49 states. They're not having to add it piecemeal. Okay, that's a big deal right there. They're going to open and be able to service 49 states from the date from the very first day of opening. That's they got. They apparently have all their ducks in a row. Whether you like them or hate them, they have all their ducks in a row. The line between crypto exchange and bank just got even blurrier. Today, the state of Wyoming awarded crypto exchange Kraken a license to create a crypto bank in the state, which is tentative, tentatively calling Kraken Financial. Huh. Okay, well, at least they're going to keep their original name, hopefully. This makes Kraken the first U.S. crypto exchange to create a bank, specifically a special purpose depository depository institution, or SPDIF, which means that Kraken can hold custody over digital assets, operate payment systems, and allow customers to easily switch between fiat and crypto. 
Kraken Financial's customers currently limited to United States residents and no New Yorkers. So there's the 50th state. Gee, can, can you wonder why? Could pay bills and receive salaries in cryptocurrency as well as hold cryptocurrency with the bank once the bank launches. David Kenitsky, Kraken's financial CEO, told Decrypt that the bank expects to launch this either later this year, but most likely at the beginning of the first quarter of 2021. Kraken intends to introduce new services among them, crypto debit cards and staking services over the next few years. The license comes with a few limitations. Kraken Financial will also be a so-called custody bank, meaning that it will not be allowed to issue loans using customer deposits. Wyoming law requires Kraken to maintain all of its customers' reserves at all times. Quote, right now we are prohibited from lending on the U.S. dollar side. There are some provisions in the statute that enable us to facilitate customer-directed lending of digital assets, and so we would anticipate conducting that type of lending activity, he said, or, well, Konitsky said, but Kraken has no plans for fractional reserve lending, and I don't think that they're going to be able to do that by Wyoming state law, so we'll have to, we'll have to see. We'll also have to see how they're going to audit themselves and present uh, the fact that they're not doing any fractional reserve lending. Um, we'll, have to, we'll have to wait and see how they're going to prove that. They better prove it. Otherwise, I, I don't believe them. Sorry. I mean, I, it'd be great, you know, to just go ahead and be rah-rah and believe all this shit out of hand. But you know how this goes. You're, you're going to have to show custody. You're going to have to show audits of that custody. And you're going to have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not, in fact, saying that you have more Bitcoin and or any other cryptocurrency than you can prove, which means that you need to stay away from Ether because nobody knows how much Ether is out there. So when they actually start dealing with Ether at this bank, you need to come down pretty hard on Jesse Powell. I'm just saying, to, just to remind them that we, we're not going to put up with that kind of bullshit. <clears throat> Continuing on, so how does the bank make its money? Quote, it's very traditional, said Konitsky. Treasury securities and other assets have yields through the U.S. dollar. Denominated yield is not so tremendous right now, he said. Apart from that, Kraken will take a cut of crypto deposited in its account and will charge fixed fees for services such as wires and bank-to-bank -bank transactions. Quote, those are the standard mechanisms for banks to make money outside of lending, he said. Then, quote, new products, qualified custody, wealth management, and other types of asset classes will have new revenue streams as well, but to start, it's going to be a very standard banking commercial model, end quote. Well, that's not exactly the only way that banks make their money, but I'm just going to go ahead and let that go. Kraken, through its new bank, will also remove its reliance on third-party banking infrastructure. Is that a cost-cutting measure? Quote, yeah, possibly, he said. We'll see. <laughs> the vagueness. That's relevant because the license will allow Kraken to apply for an account at the Federal Reserve. Okay, here we go. This is the way they really make their money. Or banks, anyway, traditionally. It can even seek membership. Marco Santori, Kraken's head of legal, tweeted earlier today, this brings with it a solemn responsibilities plus Fed supervision. It's a powerful tool, and I hope this becomes de rigueur for all applicants. Okay, so that I think that's French for rigor, but I'm not going to look at it. 
That ha- but that has the added bonus of potentially giving Kraken direct access to the Fed. And if that happens, then in theory, they don't need to rely on other banks for the fee outside of their business, explained Nick Carter, a partner at Castle Island Ventures. While Kraken would still have a long way to go before it gets there, it could eventually provide those fiat banking services directly, which is a clear value proposition, he told Decrypt and Kanitsky. Kanitsky told Decrypt. <clears throat> Santori explained earlier today that the move could also bridge the gap between traditional and crypto finance. Quote, a crypto-focused bank would permit an efficient, transparent, and responsible nexus between the traditional finance system and the crypto ecosystem, he said, Caitlin Long, a member of Wyoming's Blockchain Select Committee, added in a tweet that the vote in favor of the license was unanimous and that the process took 27 months. A few months ago, the idea that cryptocurrency companies could become banks was clarified in a public letter in July from the United States Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, an independent bureau within the United States Treasury, which said that national banks are able to hold custody over cryptocurrency, but it was Wyoming's staunch crypto-friendly stance that really paved the way for crypto banks to take form, and it's been no small feat, according to Carter. Quote, it matters because Wyoming's set of laws clarifies the relationship between depositors and institutions in a definite legal manner, which wasn't really clear before, he said. For instance, it wasn't exactly clear whether client deposits would be claimable by creditors in a liquidation situation. The SPDI law clearly establishes that distinction, but the main contribution, he said, was establishing Wyoming as a crypto-friendly jurisdiction and making some important legal clarifications around the nature of crypto collateral, which I expect other states will adopt too. So what it never answered is, well, exactly what is the, what is the relationship between depositors and institutions in, a, in, in, in the instance of, you know, Deposits being claimable by creditors and liquidation. Are, are they claimable? Because if I were to put my assets in a bank that could be liquidated by creditors and then my shit taken away, I don't want to do business with that bank. So if somebody knows exactly what that quote clarity is, let me know. Otherwise, that's it for the banking news. So grayscale speculators hit all-time lows or sorry, grayscale, Bitcoin speculators hit all-time lows as grayscale says BTC is more like 2016. Cointelegraph's William Suberg writing this one sometime early this morning. Bitcoin hodlers are beating out speculators in a sign that the cryptocurrency's bull run is, quote, just beginning, data suggests. Part of asset manager Grayscale's valuing Bitcoin. What? Oh, sorry. Part of asset manager Grayscale's valuing Bitcoin report. Sorry, Sorry, it's early, guys. Issued this month, the Hodler versus Speculator Index, or the HSI, is showing highly bullish divergence. HSI measures Bitcoin activity from wallets in order to give an impression of how network participants are using BTC and market sentiment as well. The data compiled from on-chain analytics resource coin metrics labels coins which have not moved in one to three years as hodler coins speculator coins are those which have moved at some point in the past 90 days the resulting comparison shows as of august speculator coins were disappearing while hodler coins uh coin numbers were spiking quote this chart looks potentially promising for bitcoin as there are a growing number of hodlers relative to small number of speculators in the market, author Phil Bonello commented, 
quote, notice the similar structure of that in early 2016. And they just have this chart here, which I'm not going to describe because why? Because it's a freaking chart. And it just doesn't work that well in audio. As Cointelegraph reported, analysts have already argued that the current state of Bitcoin echoes 2016, roughly 18 months before its all-time highs of $20,000. With a raft of technical indicators indicators all flashing green, the bullish potential has not gone unnoticed by many. Quote, percent of Bitcoin holders, hodlers peaking and speculators bottoming, another great indicator that the bull run is just beginning. Charles Edwards, founder of fellow asset manager Capriol, added on Twitter about HSI. The Grayscale report, meanwhile, delivers further insights into the strength of Bitcoin investor resolve in 2020. Despite highly varied price action over the past 12 months, there is a keen desire to keep BTC as an investment and not trade or sell it at any price up to the current yearly high of $12,000. Quote, it's worth noting that the Bitcoin blockchain reveals that there has never been a higher level of Bitcoin owned for more than one year, Bonello notes. Quote, this metric indicates a strong conviction in Bitcoin by its current investor base. While this is a supply-side metric, it also demonstrates the demand for Bitcoin's use case as a store of value rather than trading, it appears investors are interested in hodling Bitcoin despite its volatility. In quote, the store of value proposition continues to gain publicity this month as MicroStrategy, which, which purchased over 21,000 BTC in mid-August, confirmed it had upped its holdings to the equivalent of over $400 million. In fact, it's, they spent $425 million total uh, in other cash reserves of $500 million. So they have $75 million left to play with. Okay, so <clears throat> there you go. Just I just wanted to clarify that it's not only $400 million. It is, is well above $400 million to the tune of a quarter of $100 million. So just I, I think that that's actually rather important to state. Bitcoin Magazine, uh, Ben Car... Oh, Ben the Carman is writing this one for Bitcoin Magazine. And he did this sometime yesterday. DLCs are on Bitcoin, bringing new functionality and major potential. Bitcoin has been critiqued by those in the altcoin community for the past few years over its inability to host smart contracts, which has actually never been true. It's always been able to do smart contracts. They're just hard to write. Why? Smart contracts are hard to write. It doesn't matter what platform. Okay, and we've seen the, the results of people trying to write smart contracts and not knowing what the F they're doing. And what happens? Other people lose money. That's what happens. And that's why you don't see a whole lot of smart track contracts written on Bitcoin uh, because they're hard to write. And they're probably even harder to write on Bitcoin because, well, just because. Just I'm just saying. Recent work from developers at SuredBits, Crypto Garage, and Atomic Loans, along with efforts from some independent contributors on discrete log contracts, or the DLCs, is bringing smart contracting to Bitcoin and will quell some of these critics. DLCs are uniquely positioned to bring smart contracting to Bitcoin using Oracle contracts that are much more private and scalable than previously thought possible. So what are DLCs? DLCs are Bitcoin-based contracts that use one or many Oracle signatures for enforcement. The original proposal for DLCs was made by Taj Dryja in 2017 and later redesigned to make them more scalable and private by using something called adapter signatures. 
DLC Oracle contracts allow for users to make a Bitcoin transaction contingent on an Oracle's signature. Using DLCs, Bitcoiners can make bets on events to which the Oracle is attesting. Last week, we saw one of the first of these done by Sherbit's founder, Chris Stewart, and creator of BTC Pay Server, Nicholas Doyer, betting on the results of the United States election. After a recent DLC redesign, they were changed to use <clears throat> or changed to use a two of two multisig that pays out directly to a user's wallet instead of paying to a tweaked public key. This old design required a penalty mechanism similar to that of the Lightning Network, which made it take more block space and be less private. This redesign is made possible by using adapter signatures and making the adapter point based on the Oracle's expected signature. What this basically means is that each party gives each other invalid transaction signatures that can only be made valid in conjunction with the Oracle SIG. To make this recent bet between Stewart and Dorier possible, a lot of progress has been made in developing a standard for DLCs as well as building software according to these standards. DLC developers have been working on this standard heavily since the beginning of this year along with the specification. They have been building compatible software so far, there are four major implementations being worked on, Bitcoin S, NDLC, Rust DLC, and CFD DLC. The teams working on DLCs have lots of plans for the future of the technology. Today, DLCs have only been implemented for on-chain transactions. One of the most obvious improvements for DLCs would be to put them on the Lightning Network. <laughs> That'll be fun. <clears throat> There are two planned <clears throat> planned ways to put DLCs on Lightning. One is by making them usable, only usable between parties who already have Lightning channels open between one another, which could be done today, but would re require a lot of work done by the different Lightning implementations to add support for DLCs. <clears throat> and this could be obsoleted by the second way to do Lightning DLCs. However, there are some caveats. This, this second way to do Lightning DLCs likely won't be possible until after Taproot is activated, but it would allow these DLCs to be routed across the network and would remove the requirement to have a channel with the user's counterparty. However, this setup requires barrier escrows, which have no known major implementations. There are other general improvements to DLCs that could be made possible in the future as well. One major idea is to give the user the ability to use multiple oracles for a given contract instead of just one. Oh, that'd be awesome. This would allow users to distribute trust between multiple oracles instead of having a single point of failure for their contracts. And other small improvements can be made come Taproot. <clears throat> With Taproot, we can make multi-sig transactions look like everyday single-sig transactions, applying this to DLCs we can make them have a smaller on-chain footprint and make them look like any other standard single-sig transaction, thus saving users on fees and privacy. DLCs are a pivotal new way to bring smart contracting to Bitcoin, and we are extremely excited to see continued development with them. If you are interested in knowing more about DLCs, check out SureBits blog, and if you want to come contribute, check out the DLC specification repo. All right. Okay, the Oracle thing I think is is really fun because I've always kind of wondered about that for a long time. It's like if I make a bet on, I don't know, like Augur, which I would never use because I just, honestly, I'm not a gambling person. 
we'll we'll get to that later because I kind of made a bet, but I'll like we'll talk about that later. Um, <clears throat> generally speaking, I'm not a gambling person. I would rather put twenty, you know, two hundred dollars into a brown paper bag, soak it in diesel, light it on fire, and throw it out the window before I would set foot in a freaking casino. I don't do it in Vegas, and I sure as shit don't do it on exchanges. Okay, but if I was, then I would have to think. Well, if I won the bet, how do I know I won the bet? I mean, if the Chargers won a football game. I mean, I guess I could go to the news and I'd be pretty sure about that, but that's that would be news. I mean, what if I'm betting on something that is never going to make it to mainstream media? Like it's not I'm not betting on a United States presidential election. Let's say I'm betting on the election of a president in some third world shithole in, you know, somewhere on the other side of the planet. Because you can make those bets probably on Augur. How would I know that they won? Okay, so having the ability to have multiple oracles decide and be able to sign your message, essentially, that you won or that you lost uh, is, is great. And that also gives you the ability to say, you know, best two out of three. Again, it's like, it's like meta multisig, right? So I have five oracles that, you know, that have, that have to sign the winning signature to be a valid signature in the bet. And let's say four of them come back and say, you won the bet. And one of them come back, comes back and says, no, you didn't win the bet. Well, it's four out of five. I got a majority signature. So a majority signature is now added to my signature and makes my transaction valid so that I can pull the funds out of escrow if I've done it that way. See what I'm saying? The whole thing is actually rather fascinating. Even if I'm not a betting kind of person, there are many people in this space that are degenerate gamblers, and we see it all the time. Tone Vase could not pass a poker table without sitting his ass down and playing like 10 or 12 car, you know, hands, right? There are bets in this space all the damn time. And, and like I said, I'll recently get, uh, I've recently made a bet. However, I don't think it's ever going to be accepted, so I probably don't have to worry about my point one BTC. But again, we'll, we'll get to that after I run the numbers. Index futures from CNBC.com look like we're all going to die. Yep, Dow futures are down almost a point. S&P futures are down a point and a quarter. NASDAQ futures are down damn near two points. The S&P mini is down 1.1%. Currency futures, the U.S. dollar index looks, oh, well, it's kind of sideways. It's down 0.0. Oh, wait. It just changed from 0.05 to down 0.06. Guys, probably not not looking all that good. Gold is down three quarters of a point in its futures price. It'll probably open somewhere around nineteen hundred and fifty-five dollars. Silver's chilling out at twenty-seven bucks. Platinum is at nine hundred and fifty-two, and I still don't understand how platinum is not more is not more valuable than gold, considering it has much better properties for oxidation and conductivity and heat stuff. All oh whatever. Uh, oil is going to go sideways, zero point zero two to the downside. It's going to come in at about 40 bucks. Brent North Sea is coming in at 42 at a quarter dollars. 
natural gas has lost two or one and a quarter point. It's going to come in at $2.23. Well, futures are going to change by the time the market's actually open. But this is the best I can do for you. Okay. Real money. Bitcoin has had a slide from its $11,000 peak on the news of the MicroStrategy buy. And also the the whole pomp episode, because that episode got passed around like a cheap hooker, honestly. <laughs> well, it did. I mean, I'm just, I'm, okay, never mind. Market capitalization total for Bitcoin is $200 billion, by the way. It's actually more like $201 billion. It's pretty much smoking everybody else. Uh, 341,000 transactions were performed in the last 24 hours, and that means about 14,200 transactions were being made every hour on the hour. Good God Almighty, 3 million Bitcoin have been sent around the horn in 24 hours, and that means that about 127,800 BTC are being sent on average per hour. The average transaction value, though, is uh, really close to 9 BTC, and the median transaction value is holding stable at 0.05 BTC, about 550 bucks. Block times are are low as well, as and they were yesterday and the day before and the day before that. We are now at 8 minutes and 44 seconds. Uh, 0.44 BTC have been taken in fees on a per block basis and 72.3 BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. Hash rate has jumped by a mere 2%, bringing us to 138.7 exahashes per second. Kind of does not explain the low block time. It seems like there would be more hash power to push it down to 8 minutes and 44 seconds than there is, but whatever, I'm not going to do the maths. Ethereum at 382.5, Bcash at 233.5, Litecoin at 48.5, BSV at 163.75, Ethereum Classic is at $5.30. Dogecoin chilling out at 0.0028 and at 42,000 transactions over the last 24 hours, it beats Ethereum Classic. Again, does not beat Litecoin. What's going on with Litecoin Network? Not sure. But it certainly smokes the living daylights out of Bcash with its measly 16,292 transactions in 24 hours. Let's check in with Clark Moody. How you doing, Clark? And your bitcoin.clarkmoody.com forward slash dashboard. He is also looking at about $10,858 as price. He's running the numbers and it's coming back with 18,492,039.83 BTC in circulation. There is a scant 1,665 transactions that will take two blocks to clear. Lightning Network news. Uh, Where are we at? Oh, increase. We now have 1,086 BTC in the Lightning Network. That's about $11.8 million of liquidity spread across 7,491 nodes, representing 37,000 channels. There are 547.97 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that means that well over, well, not well over, but over half of the Lightning Network is now running over the Tor Network, and we are at 50.5%. And there are 2,402 Tor nodes that we know of. That's going to do it for vitals.
Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. We'll start this one with Mohammed Musharraf. He's writing for Cointelegraph.com sometime early this morning. Fresh reports of Indian crypto ban are clickbait, says local source. <laughs> if you haven't been alive for the last few days, then you've missed out on the fact that um, there's been news uh, about crypto being banned again in India. So let's see what uh, Mr. Musharraf has to say. The draconian bill introduced by the country's former finance secretary, Subhash Chandra Garg, in 2019 to ban cryptocurrency in India haunts the country's crypto enthusiasts and entrepreneurs to this day. Reports from Bloomberg and the local news outlet Economic Times about the further development of the bill and the possible introduction of it as law has only caused more panic and anxiety within the crypto community. These reports have always cited, quote, people familiar with the development, end quote, as saying that the bill will be discussed shortly by the federal cabinet before being sent to parliament for consideration. The same statement seemed to have been doing the round since early June. Without any additional information, these reports suggested a high possibility of a ban on cryptocurrency in India. There is, however, as much uncertainty regarding the bill today as there was a year ago. The only thing that has changed is that in March, the Supreme Court struck down the Reserve Bank of India's circular banning financial institutions from dealing with cryptocurrency companies and traders. Subramian Swamy, the ruling party's member of parliament of the Rajya Sabha, the Indian parliament's upper house, tweeted about the ban repeal saying SC allows cryptocurrency trading, cancels RBI's 2018 circular. Swamy, was also quoted by a local news outlet as saying the cryptocurrency is that cryptocurrency is inevitable, further refuting the claims of a possible cryptocurrency ban. Crypto news outlet The Block recently reported that Swami has denied hearing about any discussion of a cryptocurrency ban. Quote, it will be madness if they do, end quote. Speaking to Cointelegraph, Ashish Shingal, the CEO of cryptocurrency exchange CoinSwitch, which has its major user base in India, pointed towards a list of bills that is subject to discussion during the monsoon session of the parliament. He said that as much as one can see from the list, no purported on ban on crypto trading is scheduled for discussion. Nishal Shetty, the founder of the Indian cryptocurrency exchange Wazirix, and Sadeth Sagani, the founder of the Indian blockchain research company Kribako, also remarked on the bill saying there was nothing to worry about. Per the execs, there lies a long road ahead before the bill would even make it to Parliament. Quote, it's too early for the draft crypto bill to be presented to the Parliament, Shetty added. Calling the recent news articles clickbait, Sogani said that the Indian crypto community had reacted with a sudden panic, but that many crypto users in India are now used to such clickbait news. Yeah. <laughs> China bans Bitcoin news. We're, we're all used to this shit by now. Quote, the bill was moving for sure a few months ago, but I'm not sure about the source which Bloomberg is discussing at the moment, he stated. On the same note, Shetty said that it was a known fact that the bill has been with the finance ministry ever since the Guard Committee submitted it to them, but the way it has been interpreted in the media has caused mild panic within the industry, adding, quote, now everyone knows that it's ultimately the same information that has been around for a while. Okay, so if you're freaking out about the whole India move, yeah, we just, we, it's like everything else. You have to wait and see. If we don't wait and see, we're going to make really horrible decisions. I'm just saying.
Ethereum's pending transactions jump 30% after Uniswap's token claim begins. This is Wolfie Zhao writing for Coindesk.com sometime early this morning. The decentralized trading platform announced around 0030 UTC time Thursday that it had launched its governance token dubbed UNI with 1 billion coins that will be released over the next four years. While the liquidity mining for the governance token will not start until Friday, Uniswap said historical users and liquidity providers on the platform are now able to claim for 400 UNI per each address. Quote, 15% of UNI can immediately be claimed by historical liquidity providers, users, and SOCKS, S-O, literally S-O-C-K-S, and it's all in capitals, redeemers slash hodlers based on a snapshot ending September 1, 2020 at 12 a.m. UTC, Uniswap said in a blog post. Following the announcement, the number of pending transactions on the Ethereum network per minute has jumped from around 160,000 to over 210,000 as of writing, according to data on Blockchain Explorer Etherscan. Within three hours after the claim started, over 18,000 transactions were sent to the smart contract address of the UNI UNI governance token, with more than 5,000 of them pending at the time. The total number of transactions has now reached over 26,000, while the pending ones have dropped to around 3,700 as of writing. The increasing number of transactions sent the UNI smart contract appears to have led to a surge of the gas fee on the Ethereum network, which Uniswap's protocol is built on. The current average gas fee on Ethereum has reached 650 GUI, compared to the average 152 GUI on Wednesday UTC time based on Etherscan's data. In fact, the UNI's token, UNI token smart contract address is now ranking the third in terms of overall transaction fees in the past three hours, with a total of 534 ETH worth over $200,000 as of writing according to Etherscan. Even the site traffic on the blockchain explorer has reached a peak. The last time Etherscan site traffic peaked, to the current level was during the 2017-2018 ICO mania. Kudos to Uniswap for the successful launch of the CUNY token, said Etherscan founder and CEO Matthew Tan in a tweet. Within hours of Uniswap's announcement, major centralized exchanges including Binance, Huobi, and OKX have all listed trading pairs for the governance token, which is now trading hands at around $2.90. Honestly, man. The foolishness. I mean, people are going to get smoking rich out of this, but here's the problem. You have to know when to punch out. Over the long term, I think this is going to be a mess. I'm sure that there's going to be, you know, DeFi is probably going to be here to stay, like ICOs are with us to stay. I mean, my God almighty, you can't even kill the, the coins from 2016, much less DeFi. So, you know, we have to... We're just going to have to put up with this bullshit. And honestly, it's just nonsense because I, I can't get anybody to tell me what ETH, what not ETH, what DeFi actually does except provide liquidities to people playing in the giant shitcoin casino. And that honestly, it just doesn't make any sense. But then we have this. Aspen offers cheap resort rooms as real estate tokens struggle. And I had no idea this shitcoin was alive. Samuel Haig is going to tell us all about it out of Cointelegraph sometime very early this morning. As real estate tokens falter, Aspen Coin has announced cash rebates for token holders who stay at its resort. 
Okay, Aspen, Colorado. That that's what they're talking about. If you don't know the story behind Aspen, I'll give you a brief. It's a shit mountain town where um <clears throat> that was essentially built up by John Denver and a couple of friends. And if you don't know who John Denver is, I feel for you, pal. I really do. But after John Denver got famous and then got rich, he wanted to move to the Rocky Mountains and he found this shithole called Aspen to move into. Of course, he didn't move into the actual town itself. He moved up into the mountains where it's really pretty. But Aspen itself, if you actually look around, uh, it's, it's, it's a shithole. It's got nice buildings and there's lots of rich people that go there, but it's a shithole. So anyway, it's a ski resort in the middle of, of uh the state of Colorado in the United States. Despite the broader security token market booming in recent months, real estate tokens appear to be struggling amid the coronavirus pandemic. Aspen coin, the digital security representing fractional ownership in 19% of a five-star 179 room hotel in Colorado has announced discounts for those token holders who stay at the resort to help boost sales. (laughs) Holders of between 10,000 and 100,000 Aspen coin will be eligible for a 20% cash rebate on their stay at the St. Regis Aspen Resort, while holders of between 100,000 and 500,000 tokens will be discounted 35%, and holders of 500,000 or more can stay for half price. Token holders will be eligible to receive the discount for no more than 30 nights per calendar year. Despite trade for ASPD launching on the leading security token exchange by trade volume last month, Overstock's T0, the token has seen a fairly flat performance and has gained just 4% in three weeks of trade. By contrast, T0's TZROP token has gained 35% since the start of September. This is the whole thing hurts. Real estate token prices appear to be struggling generally amid the coronavirus slowdown, with all nine tokens trading on Realty posting losses for the month of August, the losses range between 2% and 25%, including four slumps of more than 15%. Uh, so, yeah, it's a real, there, there really are real estate tokens, and apparently they're really bad investment. And honestly, what it sounds to me like is a timeshare. That's what it sounds like to me. And most people hate their timeshares after a while. So, okay, let's do this last one. Two Russians are indicted for stealing $16.8 million in cryptocurrency. Sharwa Malwa writing this one for Decrypt.co sometime uh, sometime this morning, in fact. <clears throat> a United States grand jury indicted two Russian nationals, Daniel Potkin and Dmitry for allegedly defrauding three cryptocurrency exchanges and their customers to the tune of $16.8 million in various cryptocurrencies as per a release by the United States Department of Justice on Wednesday. The plan was apparently hatched by the perpetrators back in 2017 to conduct their crimes. The duo used phishing and spoofing tactics, which typically involved the creation of fake web domains and fake identities to trap investors and steal their login and personal information. Such frauds have reportedly accounted for over $1.9 billion in losses worldwide in 2019 alone. As per the allegations, Patalkin created over 13 fake web web domains for an unnamed U.S.-based crypto exchange to conduct his alleged crimes. He managed to get 150 customers of the exchange to input their user identification and passwords on those fake domains, effectively stealing the information to their actual accounts in that manner. Patalkin and... 
then use the stolen credentials from the victims to access their accounts and withdraw their cryptocurrency without authorization. No, they had authorization because they had their login information. That is the authorization. So you mean without knowledge is what you mean. They also used the victim's personal details to create more fictitious accounts and used these to withdraw even larger sums of cryptocurrencies from their, from their without authorization. It actually, that's how the sentence reads. I can't do anything about the grammar here. But that was not all. The criminal duo also allegedly used a sophisticated market manipulation scheme starting July 2017 that utilized the stolen credentials of the same crypto exchange for a manipulation attack for uh, that targeted three customers. The court documents detailed the manipulation process as follows. Patekin and used fictitious accounts to purchase gas, a token that allows users to transact on the Ethereum crap work prior to the manipulation. Then on October the 29th, 2017, the duo used three compromised victim accounts to purchase gas at the same time in their accounts at massively inflated prices. The duo and their co-conspirators then converted their manipulated and artificially highly valued gas tokens to Bitcoin and other digital currencies that are worth a damn, which caused the manipulated value of gas to quickly plummet and caused the value of gas tokens on the victim accounts to be worthless. This allegedly led to losses of effectively $5 million to the three victims. The document said the indictment alleged other similar fraud schemes took place between October of 2017 and March 2018, resulting in theft attacks targeting customers of two other crypto exchanges. The alleged fraudsters were able to gain over one or no, that's $11 million with the two loots and $16.5 million overall, the document said. But their luck didn't run long. The U.S. authorities were able to track some of the illegal funds to crypto account. That's this other guy's last name that I'll never be able to pronounce. And then to the perpetrator's identities. At press time, Patoken and have been charged on five counts, ranging from wire fraud to market manipulation. Some of the stolen money was regained as well. The document said that the United States Secret Service has custody of $6 million and several million dollars worth of various cryptocurrencies in connection with this crime. Meanwhile, U.S. Attorney David Anderson cautioned against ushers, or sorry, ushers, users stashing large amounts of money on crypto exchanges. He said, quote, the security of digital currency exchanges is only as good as your own vigilance. While law enforcement will do everything within our power to protect you, you must also protect yourself. <coughs> okay. So there you go. The most fascinating part of the story, honestly, is that the Secret Service is involved. If you don't know why, I can't really tell you other than the fact that the Secret Service was spawned out of the United States Treasury Department. It is not or was never meant to be enforcement for the SEC or the FBI or the CIA or anything like that. It had everything to do with making sure that people didn't counterfeit the money. All right. So I'm just saying, um, let's see here. Oh, I got a weird message on my computer. That's why I am, uh, that's why I'm kind of stammering here because I don't know if it's a process in my recording situation or not. I guess we'll see. Anyway, that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily Train Wrecked is brought to you by, who is it? It's by David Hoffman, honestly. Um, 
and uh, his little, you know, couple of his little ETH head friends. Anyway, um, let's just start right here. This was actually written on the 15th of September. So it was two days ago, clearly right after the MicroStrategy news. Uh, David Hoffman.eth, also known as at Trustless State, says this. Fuck MicroStrategy. Ethereum is the world's largest purchaser of BTC. Of course, he gets just raked over the coals in his comments, but this is the same. What he's talking about, he's, he's referencing this other, this other tweet from lastmjs.eth. <clears throat> He said, which says, hey, everyone, we're getting close to $1 billion of tokenized BTC on Ethereum and nearing 100,000 tokenized BTC. This is a bullshit narrative, okay? It, well, at least they are using, at this point, they are using a more correct term, tokenized BTC. It used to be where they would say that there's this much, you know, there's so much Bitcoin on the Ethereum network and there is none. There's, there's no Bitcoin on Ethereum. It's computationally impossible to do so. You, if you doubt me, then go get one Bitcoin and send it from your Bitcoin address, either legacy address or SegWit address. I don't give a shit. You send it <clears throat> to an Ethereum wallet to that Ethereum address, fuck around and find out what happens. Find out. And then you will understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's no such thing <clears throat> as Bitcoin on the Ethereum network. I will say this again because it's, it's, it's helpful if you've never heard it before. They're talking about this crap ERC-20 token called Wrapped BTC. What you do is this. You send your actual BTC out of your wallet that you custody and you know is safe to a company named BitGo and you leave it with them. Then either they or someone else will send you WBTC, in other words, wrapped Bitcoin. And then you can use that to lose all of your money in some vegetable-based DeFi Ponzi scheme. That's how this works. That's what this is. Wrapped BTC has no purpose other than to gamble in the ERC-20 shitcoin casino that is decentralized finance. That's it. That's its only purpose. The fact that you're dumb enough to send actual BTC to a shit company like BitGo is your own problem. And if you do so, and when you lose your money, either through BitGo's fault or the fact that you gambled it away on some vegetable-based DeFi scheme, we're not going to help you with that. You were warned. You've been warned. You will continue to be warned. I'm not going to say something like, this is the last time I'm going to say it. Why? Well, because even Jack Maller's mom, Brooke, asked a question on Twitter about this shit. She didn't know what it was. And she's been hearing about it because the narrative is getting pretty strong. If, if she heard about it, I guarantee you that you've heard about it. And if you have any friends that are even thinking about crypto, they've heard about it too. It is your duty 
to educate these people that there is no such thing as Bitcoin on Ethereum. There will never be Bitcoin on Ethereum. Ethereum depends on Bitcoin's very existence for its own, and that's why they developed an ERC-20 token designed specifically to get your Bitcoin into the hands of BitGo so that you can go gambling in a vegetable-based decentralized finance Ponzi scheme, and there's your smoldering pile over there in the corner. It's joke time here on the show. This is Terrible Joke Corner, brought to you by Dad Says Jokes, who says, I want to tell you a joke about a girl who only eats plants. You've probably never heard of herbivore. Yeah, that's a bad joke. I also forgot to tell you that I did bet this David Hoffman joker uh, with that whole ethereum or bitcoin being on ethereum guy i bet him 0.1 btc that he could not do the following send an actual btc from a native btc wallet to a native ethereum wallet and keep it there for the time length of a block on the bitcoin network and send it back after i made him that bet i didn't hear a damn thing out of david why because he's a liar he's a fraud He's a cheat. He's also a big coward wussy. Anyway, I'm just going to go ahead and end it there. I Honestly, I can't believe I made it to an hour. That's really odd. I didn't think I had that much news to, to tell. Anyway, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.